0: Let me pray, and we'll jump in. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the book of Joel, that we can study this minor prophet that oftentimes we um, can simply blow through. Lord, I pray just in the past weeks and the weeks ahead that we would continue to sit and meditate on your word, that we would understand what it meant in its original context, and from understanding that, we can apply it to our lives, even today. Lord, I pray, especially as we look tonight, um, at such a key passage on biblical repentance that I pray that we would just apply that to our hearts, that we would take that and apply it to our lives even today. So bless this time, and in your name we pray, amen. All right, so I am eager to get into um, Joel 2 verse 12, and maybe if we can get all the way to Joel two twenty three, there's some really, really fun stuff we can talk about there, but But maybe not. So let me bring you guys up to speed a little bit, context. Some of you guys, maybe you're, okay, what's going on here in Joel? So Joel is in ministering sometime probably in the 8th or 9th century B.C., 8 or 900s, probably 800s, and he's looking at Israel that has just been completely devastated by locusts, locusts upon locusts upon locusts have come, they have eaten absolutely everything, It is horrible in Israel. Everything has been cut off. There is no food. People are starving. They cannot worship the Lord rightly. And if Joel Joel is like, yeah, and if you guys think that's bad, he's like, you ain't seen nothing yet, right? Joel 115 is when he talks about, you know, the locusts have done this, but behold, the day of the Lord is near. If you're like, man, what's Joel kind of about? It's about the day of the Lord. If you just want a couple word summary, it's about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is this unparalleled day of judgment. This is what we looked at last week, Joel 2, verses 1 to 11. This is going to be a day of darkness, gloom, thick darkness. And he's been using this language um, that's most often found elsewhere in the Old Testament, talking about theophanies, okay? Theophanies, I don't think I mentioned this last week. Theophanies is just a fancy word for a unique manifestation of God in his glory, okay? Theophany, so like theo, theos, God, and then an appearance of him, theophany, and so most notably, you guys may hopefully remember this. Some of this language sounds a lot like what was going on in the Exodus plagues, right? You guys remember that? Like, you, you even think about it. where was the last time you guys think of locusts? You think of what? Exodus, eighth plague, right? Okay, and Joel two two, he's talking about you know, it's going to be a day of darkness, thick darkness, okay where else do we think of darkness, like darkness you could touch, it's so thick? The ninth plague, right? The one right after, right? And so you have a lot of this language that is drawing us back to Exodus, only if in Exodus, if God is judging the pagan Egyptians, and Joel, who's he judging? Israel. His people, right? He's judging his people because their sin has made a separation between them and their gods, and their God, and there's no you know, distinction between Jew and Gentile. If you do not turn from your sins, judgment is coming. And so that is what's going on. You also see some language of Sinai coming in there. Um, And so Joel is using that language to say, hey, the locust plague is bad, but this is just a wake-up call to the day of the Lord, okay? And that's where we left off. You come to the end of Joel 2, verse 11, it says, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? It's going to be a day of earthquakes. Heavens are going to tremble. The sun and moon are darkened. The stars withdraw. They're shining. This is a cosmic judgment. It's not just local. This is on all the nations. This is eschatological. This is terrifying. This is like unlike anything else. And then Joel 2 verse 12, where we are tonight. This is where we left off. He says, yet even now. And I mentioned this all the way back in week one, but if there's one thing that Joel does really well, is he discusses the practical nature of eschatology. Sometimes we talk about revelation, and it's like, oh, okay, you know, this is just some things that are going to happen way later on, and I don't need to worry about it. Joel would say, no. Actually, you know that these things are coming, and therefore that changes how you live here and now. He says, yet even now, declares the Lord. Well, here's the two things he's preached. The past locust plague, right? The locusts have come. This is historical. This has happened in the past. And two, what's coming next? The future day of the Lord, right? The future day of the Lord. Both of those things you need to watch out for. Both of them, their goal is that Israel would repent, turn from your sins. There's still time. I mean, this is where you see the grace of God on display. He does not owe us, you know, an opportunity to turn from our sins at all. But he's graciously warning them, wake up call with the locusts and watch out for The day of the Lord that is coming, don't delay. Now is the time to repent. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. And I just realized, I think I left my Bible in the back. But that is okay. I can just use a pew Bible. I tell you guys to bring your Bible and I didn't even bring mine. Turn to uh, Deuteronomy 30. Again, this is one of those key passages, Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 30. We've been working through this because Joel is working through Deuteronomy. That's why. Notice the language here in Joel 2.12. He says, return to me with all your heart. Deuteronomy 30 here, the context. Moses is speaking to the second generation as they're about to go into the promised land. He's warning them, right? If you obey, you're going to be blessed. If you disobey, you're going to be cursed. Um, contextually in Deuteronomy 4, he's already said this is going to take place in the latter days, which is a very, very key phrase hopefully we'll look at next week um, when we come to the end of Joel chapter 2. But he's saying these blesses and curses are going to come. Look at Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God. Notice that language of return, right? We saw that in Joel. Return, you and your children, obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart. You see how Joel is just bringing that together? Okay, if Deuteronomy 30 is saying, hey, Israel is going to return. They're going to turn to the Lord with all their heart. Joel is saying, hey, you guys need to do that now. Return to the Lord with all your heart. You see this jump down in uh, verse 10. Of Deuteronomy 30. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law. When you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. See that language there. Joel is just quoting Deuteronomy 30 and he's saying, hey, the curses have come upon you. The locusts have come. The day of the Lord is still coming. Regardless of that, you need to turn from your sins, turn to the Lord with all your heart. I think this is vital. We'll hopefully spend time talking about this. Just write this down. This is so key for understanding biblical repentance. True repentance flows from and out of the heart. True repentance flows from and out of the heart. It is a willful act. It is a sinner choosing to turn from sin. That is what repentance, to return, the Hebrew word is shuv, that's what it means. It's just turn. It's not rocket science. It's like, oh, what does that mean in the original languages? What does it mean? I know it's in turn, it's English. It's, it's turn. But what does it mean in the original language? It, it means the same thing. It means turn. <laughs> you just turn around. It's a willful, complete, volitional change, and you're going the exact opposite direction. And so Joel, in preaching Deuteronomy 30, he's saying, look, judgment is coming, okay? And actually, the judgment can't be thwarted. We'll look at this later on. It's not that, you know, If, you know, a remnant of Israel returns that, okay, now the judgment is coming. No, the judgment is coming. But if you return, if you turn from your sins and turn to the Lord, you will not go through that judgment. Does that make sense? God's judgment on sin is still coming. And so Joel's hope is to create, I'll talk about this more, a righteous remnant, you could say. Joel's hope is to create a righteous remnant. He says, return to me with all your heart, with fasting with weeping and with mourning here's this biblical doctrine doctrine of repentance with fasting weeping with mourning the internal produces the external you guys see this return to me with all your heart with fasting with weeping with mourning they're not contrary they're actually complementary they go together the internal change produces the external change right when you're seriously broken over your sin that's going to change your life right they're not contradictory, they go together. I think with um, fasting, just one thing on this, fasting is purposeful in the Bible. Uh, You fast because it's so important that you do something, right? Like, you notice this, like, in, uh, like, Esther, right? You know, when Esther hears, you know, about the plot of Haman and that all the Jews are going to be killed, she calls for, I think it's Mordecai, actually, calls for a fast among all the Jews because they need to focus on this thing of asking the Lord for mercy because if they don't, what's going to happen? They're all going to get wiped out, right? So sometimes I think we we, we sometimes have a poor view of fasting. Biblically, we fast because something else is so important, something spiritual, right? Dealing with sin, um, praying for your church, something like that. So I just, I'm not going to go off on a tangent on fasting, but I think that's important to keep in mind. And this type of repentance, it's still the same today, right? Um, Psalm 51, right? David's prayer of repentance um, after sin with Bathsheba is drawing on Joel too. You go to 2 Corinthians 7 where he talks about godly grief, not worldly grief. He's drawing on Joel too. This is what biblical repentance looks like. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments right? It starts in the heart. It's not He's not saying that you shouldn't, you know, ever rip your garments, but if you just rip your garments just in hypocrisy, that's not the point, right? Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord. See that language again? Return to the Lord your God. That's Deuteronomy 30, verse 10. We already looked at it. For he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Does that remind anyone of any verse? Exodus, yes? You turn there, Exodus 34. Exodus 34. This is one of the most quoted verses in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Exodus 34. Which, by the way, what's the context? What just happened two chapters earlier? There was a there was a cow and it was gold. Yes, yeah, the golden calf, right? You guys remember that? Like golden calf, real bad, wicked. Like, like Moses is up on the mountain. He gets the law, and you know those memes where it's like you had one job. It's like Israel had one job. Like, 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 like the law isn't even back down the mountain, and they've already broken all ten commandments. Like, like they had one job, and they they didn't even like they didn't even get through the application process. Like they didn't even have the job, um, and they already blew the job. Okay, that's the context. Okay. And so what happens is, um, you know, the tablets are broken, Moses makes new tablets, and, you know, the Lord doesn't strike the people down immediately on the spot. Why? Because of Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, which that's just Yahweh, Yahweh, the personal name for God. Yahweh, Yahweh, this is who he is. And what does it sound like? Joel 2, verse 13. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that is what Joel is going back to. He's alluding back to the golden calf. God forgave Israel because of who he is, his character. He is slow to anger, literally long of nose is what it says. God is not out there to zap people because he's just an angry guy, just, I'm so angry, I can't believe you did that. That is anything but who God is. He's abounding in steadfast love. Steadfast love is, you know, if you guys are, you want to be nerds, just write down hesed. H-E-S-E-D. It's, like, really important Hebrew word, okay? The ESV is very consistent in how they translate it. They typically always translate it steadfast love. And it always goes back to God's covenant-keeping faithful love going back to, like, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant. So even, you know, regardless of people's sin, God is going to be faithful to his promises to Abraham and to David. And so Joel here is alluding back to, hey, you can return to the Lord your God because Exodus 32 and the golden calf and Exodus 34 are proof of it, right? God relented over disaster. He did not bring judgment on these people. He was gracious and he was merciful and he's still the same God. And so you can turn to him. What God did in the Exodus for Israel, he can do again in Joel's day for his people. And the same is true for us today. We can have full confidence and assurance that we can turn to the Lord because we still serve the same God. And he relents over disaster. Verse 14, who knows whether he will not turn and relent. Does that sound like any other minor prophet? Actually, not the minor prophet himself, but someone says that in a book which is a minor prophet with a big fish. Remember Jonah, right? When Jonah goes to Nineveh and, you know, he proclaims, you know, if you don't turn, actually his, his sermon is terrible. It's like so short. There's like nothing to it. He's just like, hey, repent or else you're going to be destroyed. And remember the, the leader of Nineveh? What does he say? Like, hey, put on sackcloth, do all this stuff. Who knows whether this Lord might forgive us? And so it's very, very similar. We don't know if Joel's quoting Jonah or if Jonah's alluding to Joel or vice versa, but there's clearly some of the same language there. It says, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. And this kind of gets into, you know, what I was talking about earlier of Joel wanting to create a righteous remnant. I mean, you guys even think about the language here, right? Who knows whether he will not turn and relent, relent or, or stop or cease and leave a blessing behind him. I mean, it's indicating that judgment is coming, right? You see what I'm saying? Like that language, like it means that the judgment is certain, but if we repent, we might not be judged. Does that make sense? The group of people, let's just say, you know, it's a hundred people, they're going to get judged, but that one person who turns might escape judgment. You know, it kind of goes back to Exodus, right? If you're still thinking with Exodus language, right? You guys remember the final plague? What happens? The judgment still comes, but for those who turn to the Lord in faith and they put the blood of the animal on their door and they obey the Lord, the Lord passes over them in judgment, right? You guys see that? It's the same thing with Joel here. Yeah? Yeah. Or by few, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, no, that's another great example, and Joel is too, is that, you know, we're at the Lord's mercy. Like, like, we can't manipulate the Lord. You know, what we can do, especially now, you know, under the, the new covenant and the ministry of Christ, you know, if Christ says, you know, you know, all who come to me, I will never turn away. You know, if I'm, gentle, lowly, I'm gentle and lowly of heart. You know, if, you confess our, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We cling to those promises, right? He's promised that that is what he's going to do. Um, but especially, I mean, you can see some of this, you know, just the blessing of what it is to be under the new covenant. We have those assurances and those promises and those verses that we can turn to that the Old Testament believer did not have, right? And so we can cling to those. Yeah, no, great, great point. And so this is beginning to unpack what biblical repentance looks like. Return to the Lord with your whole heart. Second half of verse 14. Um, oh, he says, you know, in who knows whether who not turn and relent, leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering. You guys remember that from Joel chapter one. They don't have it, right? Joel one verse nine, right? If you guys turn back there real quick, if you still have the notes. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off. Verse 13 of chapter 1, he calls the priests lament. Why? Because they have no grain offering and drink offering. Well, here they're saying that right worship can be restored. Is that if you return to the Lord, perhaps blessing will be left behind, not judgment. Does that make sense? They're holding out hope, which will be unpacked a little bit more. keep reading, Joel, because I think you'll, I think you you will, Joel will answer your own questions. Yes. Verse 15. Just look at all these imperatives, commands, right? You guys just see this. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children. You guys see just boom, 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 boom. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, right? Look, Israel, this is what you need to do. Blow the trumpet in Zion. By the way, this was interesting from a commentary I read. Zion is, you know, another word, you know, we talk about Jerusalem, right? Um, Or Israel. Sometimes you'll just say Zion or something like that. Why, like this is a good question to ask, why does he say Zion and not Jerusalem? Well, typically, Zion um, is used more in contexts where, you know, there's loyal, hopeful, um, secure promises. Like, Hey, you know, Zion, the city of David, that's our place. Yeah, that's our capital, you know, and it's secure and there's hope. Well, here he's saying, hey, the most secure place, you need to repent. Does that make sense? Blow the trumpet in Zion. You guys need to do this. Consecrate a fast. Why? For the purpose of repentance. Call a solemn assembly. We saw that back in chapter 1, verse 14, where he calls a solemn assembly. He's just going back. He's going back In picking up the same language, gather the people, get everyone. Again, this is going back to chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, where he's saying, gather all the generations, you know, the old, the young, get everyone. Consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, old to young, top to bottom, everyone. Get the children, even nursing infants, get the babies, man. They got to get involved in this. I mean, this is just imperative after imperative. I love this last one here, too. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Basically, what he's saying here is get the bride and groom on their wedding night. Like, whoa, that's like a really important thing. (laughs) That is like uh, private and glorious and wonderful and all these things. It's like, man, you've been waiting all this time leading up to this. Whoa, the night is here. I mean, this is really helpful when it comes to biblical doctrine of repentance. It is more important that you leave that and repent and turn to the Lord. I mean, that is what Joel is saying. Biblical repentance is more important than that. You all need to turn to the Lord. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the whole nation from top to bottom. Yeah. And you come down to verse 17, who needs to lead in doing this? The priests. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep. You go look just back up to verse 12. What does he say? With fasting, with weeping. Come down here. Priests, you need to lead in this. The leaders of Israel. The vestibule, You know, maybe you're not familiar with that. It's the porch. It's kind of the front um, of that temple in Jerusalem. So you go up the steps. Um, that would be the front porch right there. The altar would be um, you know, inside where the sacrifices would be uh, offered. And so he's saying, hey, priest, go to the front of the temple and cry out. Remember, they've got no... They have nothing to offer. They have no wood, oil, you know, grain offering. They got nothing. They are at the Lord's mercy. And he's calling them, cry out to the Lord. It's interesting, Solomon does this in 1 Kings 8, uh, 22. 1 Kings 8 is an amazing chapter, if you haven't read it. Solomon's sermon is just absolutely amazing. And I've already mentioned this, but Joel actually alludes back to his sermon a couple times. But Solomon does the exact same thing. He stands in the exact same place. Kind of as an intercessor, one interceding for Israel. And what does he say? Joel 2 17, and say, spare your people, O Yahweh. Remember your covenant keeping, faithful, Hesed love, right? You go back to verse 13. That's what he's saying there when they allude to the personal name of the Lord. Remember your people and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. So notice, I think this is helpful in in formulating a doctrine of repentance, they don't appeal to themselves. You guys notice that? What do they appeal to? Lord, why should you forgive on the basis of his name and his character? Because of the greatness of who God is. Lord, you have promised that you are gracious and that you are merciful and that you are slow to anger, that you are abounding in steadfast love. That is why, that's all we complete, is just you. And that, you know, the nation of Israel is your heritage. You chose Israel to be a kingdom of priests for your glory. We have utterly failed in that. Do not blot us out. Don't make us a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God, right? There's even a concern for the sake of God's name among the nations, right? How will the world know that there is only one true God if we are completely wiped out? out. I thought this was interesting. Um, you don't have to turn there, but that line there, a byword among the nations, you see that in Deuteronomy, guess what chapter? 28, right? It's either 28 or 30. There's the only two chapters we've been going back to because that's what Joel's quoting, right? Deuteronomy 28 verse 37, I think. Put it down. Yeah, and he's talking about, you know, if Israel, if they disobey and they're cursed, Deuteronomy 28.37, it says, And you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples, or among all the nations. That's what Joel says here in 2.17, right? Don't allow that to happen. Lord, please have mercy. Don't let us become a byword, huh? A byword is like, uh, it's nothing. Yeah, it's kind of like a... Useless, yeah. Something, yeah. Even like, um, I would say derogatory, bad reputation, yeah, yeah. Ridicule, there you go, yeah. Make fun of, it's not positive. <laughs> you also see Solomon say this. I already mentioned First Kings eight. He continues on, I think, in First Kings nine. Yeah where the Lord says that, you know, if they sin, I will cast them out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. Yeah, so that would be, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, um, but that, okay, now I'll get there. But basically, Basically, what they're pleading for is the covenant promises that God gave to Israel, right? God chose Abraham. I will make you a great nation. In you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Well, if we're utterly blotted out and cease to exist, can God fulfill those promises? No. And so they're saying, Lord, if we are your chosen people, don't utterly destroy us. Have you forsaken your people? Does that make sense? If we're your chosen instrument, um, by which through the line of Abraham, um, the snake crusher, I mean, going all the way back to Genesis 3, is going to come. Lord, do not abandon your people. Don't make us a laughingstock among the nations because we've been utterly destroyed. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? So I want to pause for like three minutes maybe. Because I think it's easy with a book like Joel to go like, okay, that's interesting. Wow, that's really cool. But I mean, it would be terrible if we go through Joel and we don't practically apply it. And I think this is a chapter, or these six verses, particularly on repentance. So, how does this pack? How does this passage define for us or unpack what it means to repent? Anything? A couple observations. What's that? It's serious if you don't. Yeah, right. It's urgent. It's incredibly urgent, no matter who you are or where you are. Right? Yeah. 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 No, it's very true. Yeah, the faith... Yeah, I mean, if you repent, if you turn from your sin, intrinsic to that is that you believe that the Lord will accept you, right? Not based on your own merit, but because of the merit of another, right? We get to the New Testament. Yeah. Yeah, you're not just turning from sin to something else. You're turning from sin to God himself. Yeah. it's good. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's amazing when you come to, I think it's 2nd, I think it's 3rd John where it talks about, it's kind of a missionary epistle. It talks about the people going out for the sake of the name. Like, the primary motivation for evangelism and the gospel, biblically, is the glory of God and for the sake of his name. Like, yes, it should be that we love people, and we do not want people to go to hell, and we do not want people to face the day of the Lord, as Joel is talking about. But ultimately, it's because we love the Lord, and we want we want, we're jealous for God's glory in saving sinners. Does that make sense? Yeah. <clears throat> yes. Yeah. 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 Go ahead, Jeff. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that gets into, you know, what theologians will talk about is the simplicity of God, is that he's not a composition of parts, but that, you know, and this was really helpful for me is that in thinking through, it's not that God is sometimes loving and sometimes just, but actually he is always loving and always just, and that when he loves, his love is a just love, and that when he exercises justice, his justice is loving. Does that make sense? And so you start to realize all of these attributes are not, you know, sometimes I'm, you know, it's not like God is in the armory. It's like, okay, now I'm going to use this tool. I'm going to use this tool. He is all of those things at the same time. Does that make sense? He's the definition of all of those things. So, yeah, good. Yeah, I was just going to say one thing with repentance, too, is that it's it's a, it's a whole person change. I would say mind, will, and affections, right? It's not that, you know, yeah, I'm not going to do these things, but my heart is still engaged to sin, right? It's a whole person turning from all of sin, both with my mind, I'm ceasing to think on these things, my will, I'm volitionally turning from these things, my heart. I no longer love what I used to love. I hate sin. Um, so yeah, I have got to keep moving. But Joel two twelve to seventeen, key passage to go back to. Key passage to go back to. I mean, and that's such a practical doctrine, right? When you're ministering to friends, neighbors, family, whatever, right? Repentance. What does repentance look like? You don't have. to, I mean, it's good to go to the New Testament. I'm not saying we shouldn't go to the New Testament, but sometimes we can go to the Old Testament too. Like the Old Testament is God's word, right? So go to Joel. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, and that's where it's a both internal and external, right? True heart change is going to lead to change on the external. Yeah, yeah, good, good. Okay, I wanted to get, I'm, I'm glad. That was like bottom line. It's like we just got to get through point three, right? It's like I set the bar low so that way you guys are never disappointed, or I'm not disappointed, okay? Point four. Point four we won't get through this whole one. Material restoration, okay? This is a key turn in the book of Joel, okay? That was point three. That's at the top of page 9. Call to true repentance. Yes. Yeah. So, yes, yes, those are weeks ago. Yes. So, point 4. This is a, a key turn, material restoration, okay? Material restoration. So, in light of Joel 2, 1 to 11, so two weeks ago, or no, last week, can the day of the Lord be stopped? No. Day of the Lord is coming. Judgment is coming, Okay. But if you repent and turn to the Lord, Israel can expect blessings from Yahweh. Okay? If you turn, you can cling to the promises of God and maybe he will you know, relent. He won't bring complete judgment on us. Now here in verse 18 and following, okay? verses 18 and following is what I would call the prophetic perfect. Okay? You can write that down. That's helpful. The prophetic perfect. Okay? If you guys notice... What's been happening previously in Joel is, you know, all these things, you know, blow the trumpet. You know, it's kind of, you know, present tense or future tense, right? A lot of what's recently been going on. But you look at verse 18, what does it say? Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. So it's almost as if, like, oh, like, like the people repented. The people repented. They turned from their sin the Lord became jealous for his land. They had pity. The Lord answered his people. He's going to do all these things. Now, we'll get into this contextually, but I think Joel is clear that this is not something that historically happened like a couple of weeks after he preached a message of repentance. Okay? This is what I would call is the prophetic perfect. In other words, Joel is seeing clearly the future of what Israel will do, I would argue, in the last days. Israel is, in mass, going to turn to the Lord, okay? He is seeing the future, and he's writing about it historically because it's guaranteed to happen. Does that make sense? That's actually a very important point, point. Um, and we'll get into this. Um, he's indicating that this is something that's going to come to pass in the future, and it's so sure that it's going to come to pass in the future. He's writing about it as if it already took, past. It, it already took place in the past that make sense tracking with me okay so he says then the lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people so if the main notes so far in joel have been judgment here's their blessing okay this is the the key shift right this is god in all his compassion this is the god who is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love he is going to restore his people exodus 19 5 talks about how israel is god's treasured possession they are a holy nation designed to be a kingdom of priests. They are his people. Exodus 15 talks about um, Jerusalem, the location, um, as the mountain of God's inheritance. Okay? We've talked about this already, but that there's ongoing significance both to the people of Israel, but also the place of Israel, the land. Right? It's not just the people um, without the place, or it's not just the place without the people. It's the whole enchilada. You need both. God cares about his people and his land, right? You guys see that. I'm not making this up. Verse 18. The Lord became jealous for what? His land. And had pity on his people, right? That is um, the God of the Old Testament. He cares for both his people and his place. And he's going to um, he declares to Israel that they are his and that he's going to restore them. And this is actually what you know, the priests pray for in the previous verse, right? Make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Well, what happens? The Lord is jealous for his land. He has pity on his people. Because of his promises, he reacts and he does these things. So let's keep reading. Verse 19, the Lord answered and said to his people, he's responding to a repentant Israel. He says, behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, and oil. Does that sound... Significant or familiar to anyone, right? You guys remember Joel 1, verse 10? Joel 1, verse 10, because the what's happening? They're crying out. They're in sorrow because of the locusts. What have they destroyed? Grain, wine, and oil. Okay, well, what's going on here in Joel 2, 19? The Lord is restoring all those things. He's giving them grain, wine, and oil. They have food, they can eat, they can rightly relate to the Lord, there's restored fellowship, restored communion, and you will be satisfied. That word satisfied has a a notion of like being full. It's not like, you know, sometimes like I'll eat dinner and it's like, you know, I could have another bite, but I'm satisfied. It's not that, like they're they're full, they're stuffed, they're saying no more, right? That's what's going on here. You will be richly satisfied, I think actually what some translations say, and I will no more Make you a reproach among the nations. This is one of the reasons why I think that Joel is talking about something far in the future. Because, just think about this. If he's talking about, you guys remember the Babylonian captivity? What year was that? Yeah, I did it backwards to see if you guys would catch it. Babylonian captivity, 586. The first one, the Assyrian captivity, what year is that one? 722, okay. So typically what you have, I did it reverse to try and trick you guys. I know it was mean. But you had the Assyrian captivity in 722. Then you have the Babylonian. So Assyrians take the northern kingdom, right, the uh, ten tribes in the north. The Babylonians take the southern kingdom, Judah, and I think Benjamin, the southern tribes in the south in 586. Okay. But you guys know this. They return to the land. That's right. You know, like we're reading Nehemiah. It's like, I don't even know what Nehemiah is talking about. Like, why all these names on Sunday morning? It's like, those are the people returning back to the land. And you're like, oh, wow, that sounds really good. And then you realize, like, okay, the total's only, like, I think it's like 70,000 or something like that, which is, like, smaller than Bakersfield, and Bakersfield's not that big. So do you think that's the glorious restoration of Israel? No, no, okay? And here's the point. In Joel 2.19, he says, I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. After they return from captivity, do they become a reproach among the nations again? Yes, right? When you come to the New Testament, what, you know, superpower are they under the thumb of? Rome, right? And it's in 70 AD that the temple's destroyed, Jerusalem's burned by the Romans. So did they become a reproach again? Yes. So I would argue Joel is saying this has not happened yet. That there is actually still a time, a glorious future for Israel, where there will never be a reproach, be made a reproach again. Does that make sense, Teresa? Um I don't know how to fit it on my timeline. I would probably say I mean I I make fun of timelines and the the charts and all that stuff. I don't know. Yeah. It could be. I don't know. Yeah. I I would say that this would happen okay. During the tribulation I'm I I can't get into this because we don't have time. But They are currently, they would be, you know, under, you know, attack, and I don't know if I would say they'd be made a reproach, but Israel is going through really tough times during the tribulation, right? So I would say the millennial, the millennial kingdom on, they are not a reproach among the nations. So I'm not going to talk about that much more, but that's where I would say is probably when that starts, okay? So for Joel's sake, wait, (laughs) wait till the end. Let me get through this. Give me a chance, people. Um. I'll no more make you a reproach among the nations. Never again. This is not going to happen. Okay, so this is some type of greater permanent restoration for Israel where they'll never be driven out again. And remember, I gotta get through this. This is all still in the context of the day of the Lord, right? So he's warning them: hey, day of the Lord is coming. There's going to be judgment, but for those who repent, for those who turn to the Lord, that righteous remnant, there's actually going to be what? Not judgment, but Blessings, right? And that's rooted in Deuteronomy 28. 28 is blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. 30 is when he's talking about um, a glorious restoration when he gives them a new heart, okay? He's still tracking along with that. Verse 20. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land. Okay, who is this? You know, some, There's all kinds of weird... <laughs> dispensational books about there. It's like, who, the, the northerner, the identity of the northerner. Who is Gog and Magog? It's Russia, it's China, it's Kim Jong-un. It's just like, guys, don't get weird, okay? You don't need to get weird, okay? Joel is just saying the northerner, okay? And this is just kind of, like you guys can just kind of do a little bit of basic geography. Who all is going to Israel in 2024? Records, myself, okay. I've, I have, yeah, I haven't even been there. But generally speaking, what's on the west of Israel? Mediterranean Sea, okay, so generally speaking, you're not going to attack by that way because ocean, unless you got boats, okay, generally speaking, people aren't attacking from the west, okay, from the south into the east, what do you got, bunch of desert, it's terrible, you're going to die out there, okay, you don't want to, you're typically not attacking that way, typically speaking, and you see this throughout Israel's history, regardless of where they're from, actually, if they're more to the east or, you know, whatever, People typically attack from the north. That's the easiest way to attack Israel. That's why he's saying, I'll remove the northern or far from you. Why? Well, because when Israel's attacked, that's where they come from, okay? From the north, okay? So in the last days, and I think this is significant, Ezekiel 38. You guys don't need to turn there, but Ezekiel 38 is a key prophecy about Gog and Magog. You guys remember Gog and Magog? Like what in the world? Gog and Magog, what? Okay, he picks it up in Revelation 20, the end of Revelation 20, in the last days, After the millennium, Gog and Magog is going to be summoned and they're going to attack Israel. And it's just like it's not even an attack because it's like, you know, it's just like Jesus is just like rain fire from heaven and they're destroyed. But Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 is guess where they're just guess where they're described from coming from. I'll give you a hint. It's not the south, the north. Right. And so there's some textual connections there. Maybe Joel and Ezekiel are talking about the same Thing. So, generally speaking, that's where people attack from. Could it be? I think it's going to be some type of confederation of uh, nations because Ezekiel 38 talks about that. But even one of those nations described as coming from the north is in Africa, Ethiopia. I think it's Puth or something like that in Hebrew. But it's in Africa, okay? So it's like, okay, like that's south, but they're going to attack from the north. Does that make sense, to everyone? Don't get carried away with the northern stuff, don't get weird, okay? But they're going. Yahweh is going to totally destroy this army. Look what he says: "I will remove the northerner. I'm going to drive him into a parched, desolate land." Who's the one doing the fighting? God, right? Goes back to the thing. You know, it's not locust, it's not squirrel, it's Jesus. God is doing this, right? If you guys didn't get that one, that's okay, right? He's going to drive their vanguard into the eastern sea, probably the Dead Sea, right? And his rear, God, into the western sea. This is total annihilation. They're going to be thrown into the ocean. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. It's just like, oh, he's done great things. That's not a compliment, people. This is wicked. They've done evil, terrible things. God is going to judge this nation because of how evil their wickedness is. You guys see what I'm saying there? He has done evil, wicked, wicked things. Verse 21, fear not, O land. If you go back to Joel 1.10. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns. It's the exact same word, Adamah. Um, For land there, fear not, O land. Fear not, O earth. Be glad and rejoice. Well, in Joel 1.10, what was the land doing? Metaphorically, figure of speech. It's crying out. It's weeping. Okay? Well, there's going to be a glorious time where the land is not weeping. It's going to be glad. It's going to rejoice. For the Lord has done great things. You guys see the contrast there between the Lord doing great things and this evil nation doing wicked, horrible, great things, right? They just want to destroy and bring destruction and all this stuff, but the Lord is actually going to use them to accomplish His purpose, and He's going to um, God's power is distinct because He can bring the destruction, but He can also restore it as if it never even happened, right? We can destroy things, but we can't really restore things to the, to the condition they were. You guys see what I'm saying? But the Lord can do the great thing of um, reversing the disaster. This is totally distinct. We'll get down to verse 23 and then we'll end. I'll leave you guys on a fun, very fun verse. Okay. He says, Fear not you beasts. And by the way, a lot of these are just direct reversals of Joel chapter one. Right? So Joel chapter one, he's been saying, Hey, the land is crying out. Well, now here in 21, you know, the land is glad and rejoicing. Verse 22, fear not you beasts of the field. Remember that in chapter 1 where like the beasts are like crying out because there's no food for them to eat. The beasts are sad. Uh, Joel 1.18, how the beasts groan, the herds of cattle perplexed, the flocks of sheep suffer. Verse 20, even the beasts of the field pant for you. Fear not beasts of the field. Why? Because the pastures of the wilderness are green. Remember Joel 19 and 20, what does it say? The pastures of the wilderness, the fire has devoured them. It's exact same language. This is a reversal. This is going to be a glorious reversal. Everything that the locusts have destroyed, God is going to restore it tenfold. It's going to be way better. The tree bears its fruit. In chapter 1, remember how all these trees are burned down, and they don't, they're not producing anything, and the locusts are stripping off their bark, and they're just dying. Well, here these trees are bearing full fruit. And then you guys know this. You're like, oh, this is Caleb's favorite thing to point out in the whole Testament. The fig tree and the vine. Oh, the fig tree and the vine, right? No, it is really significant, the fig tree and the vine. You go back to 1 Kings 4, 25, right? And it's talking about this glorious prosperity of Solomon, this glorious time of Israel. It's like nothing we've ever seen before. And we're, whoa, is, is this the, the, the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel? Is this when the, the messianic king is going to come? No, it's not. But Joel, if you remember, he's already mentioned fig tree and vine twice, right? This glorious, the good old days of Israel are long gone, destroyed. The good old days are back, right? There's this glorious, glorious future. If you guys want to cross, yes. Yes. This, This is, this is, so that's why I don't want to, I'm not going to put things on a timeline. Because I don't think Joel is putting things on a timeline. I think Joel doesn't know the timing of these events. Like if we talk about, remember 1 Peter 1.11? Talking about, you know, the suffering of Christ and his subsequent glories. I think Joel is talking about the glories that will follow his suffering. I don't think Joel knows exactly when this is going to happen. And that's actually important because when we get to Joel 2.28, it's, it's not as if Joel is saying this is going to happen and this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. Like in sequential order, A, B, B, C, C, D. I think Joel is saying this stuff is going to happen. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Good question. Um, by the way, if you if you want to cross reference those, um, I said them fast. First Kings four twenty five, Micah four four, Micah four one to four is amazing because Micah four one to four and Isaiah two one to five they're saying the exact same thing. Uh, Isaiah two one to five or one to four I can't remember. Just start reading, and it'll. Well, no, I'm serious. You just start reading Isaiah 2, and then you read Micah 4, the first couple verses, and you're like, I feel like I just read this. It's like, you did just read that. It's the exact same thing. And then Micah adds on this promise to this glorious future when the Lord reigns in Jerusalem and the law of the Lord is going to go forth. He adds there at the end, every man is going to live under his vine and under his fig tree. And it's just like, whoa, amazing, if you're Caleb, if you're a nerd. okay. Zechariah 3.10 also mentions vine and fig tree. There's some other things, but I don't need to talk about that. Micah 4, 4, Zechariah three ten. Okay, verse 23, I'll leave you guys here. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. Again, going back to Joel chapter 1, right? Remember verse 12? Gladness dries up from the children of man. Be glad, O children of Zion. He's deliberately quoting from what he was just preaching a chapter back, and he's saying there's a reversal. Joy and gladness are no longer cut off. Right fellowship with God has been Restored, and they can rejoice in the Lord your God. Okay, now verse 23, this is what it says. For he has given to you, you guys follow me, Joel 2, 23? It says, for he has given you the teacher of righteousness. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. Did your guys' translation not say that? I was hoping someone would be like, what? What? Okay, so, this is... A very interesting verse, Joel 2.23, okay? Figures like, man, Joel class is amazing. What are we talking about? The teacher of righteousness? Okay, so, and I have an article if you guys want. I can give it to you guys. The way that, well, let me go back. Early, early church history, okay? Like I'm talking about, um, actually I'm even going back pre-days of Christ, okay? There's a community. You guys heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay, they were discovered um, in the 20th century, I think, 1950s, 1960s. Okay, they were discovered in Israel around the Dead Sea. uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, go figure, at the Dead Sea. Okay, um, but there they found um, remnants of all these scrolls and what they called this community called Qumran, okay? So if you guys read nerdy biblical stuff, sometimes we'll talk about Qumran, Qumran, Qumran. And I remember, I, I think I was in seminary, I was like, I have no idea who Qumran is. It's like I don't know what are we talking about here, and I finally realized like oh like it's this group of Jews they were a little different in some of their Jewish theology, um, and they lived at this area and we just call them Qumran okay, you don't need to know that okay but anyways these people they had a leader among their group that they would call the teacher of righteousness okay and it's based on this verse Joel two twenty three okay and a lot of actually. Early church fathers, the Latin Vulgate, so we're talking about early, um, early church pastors, right, and early translations of the Bible, they would translate Joel 2.23, that middle line, um, for he has given you the teacher of righteousness, okay? This is actually a text, I'm about 50-50 on it, okay, and if you guys want the article, I can give it to you. There's a solid chance that this is actually a messianic prophecy, it's like what in the world? Like rain, vindication, teacher, righteousness. I just don't see it. Okay. So there's multiple words in Hebrew for rain. Okay. Um, typically, the most common words would be. Um, I actually wrote them down here because I this was a, this was new for me, but I'm a nerd, so I was like, this is fascinating. Um, geshem is typically the normal word for rain, and so if you guys keep reading 2:23, Tyree he says he has poured down for you abundant rain, right there? That's the normal Hebrew word for rain. Okay? Just like rain. Water coming from the sky. No, 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 no. Yeah, not raining like on the throne. Like, like water from the sky, rain. Okay? And so what happens here, the word translated early rain, most commonly throughout the Old Testament, it's just simply defined as teacher. Okay? Just simply means teacher. Okay. Vindication sadakah um, righteousness, is just the simple Hebrew word for righteousness, okay? He has poured down for you abundant rain. That's the normal Hebrew word for rain. The early, see that r- word right there, the early? That's the same word for early rain up in the mid- the early rain in the middle of that third line there, okay? The early and the latter rain Malkash, that's another Hebrew word for rain. They're like, man, Hebrew makes this complicated. Yes, it does. Okay, There's different words being used for rain. Okay, So what's going on here? Okay, What do I think is going on? That Typically, the reason why, typically when you come to the last 100 years, 200 years, it actually goes back even further. Um, so like, for example, John Calvin would translate this as early rain, you know, talking about water and not teacher. Is that in context, what's he talking about? I mean... What's the title of point 4? Material restoration, okay? So it kind of seems kind of random to go from all these material you know all these glorious blessings that are going to come, all these things, and then all of a sudden insert something here about the Messiah, a teacher for righteousness that's going to come. But as I have argued and tried to show, the whole context from Joel chapter 2 on is still what? The day of the Lord, which is something that comes, what, eschatological in the future, okay? So it actually, contextually, isn't that crazy to go, well, it could be that Joel is talking about maybe not the first coming of the Lord, but actually the second coming, okay? Maybe that when Messiah comes, again, I don't think Joel distinctly knew, okay, first coming, second coming, I just think he thought, because this is what the Lord revealed to him, that Messiah is coming, he sees that when Messiah comes, that there's going to be this glorious restoration of Israel. And we, we know this, you know, looking after his first, you know, looking back at his first coming, we know that Christ is what? Coming again. And that it's going to be glorious, right? He's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to reign on the earth. There's going to be the new heavens and the new earth. And there's going to be this glorious future, right? And so I think contextually it's not that crazy. If you want an article, I printed a few out for you. The reason why I would lean towards that actually what he's saying here is um, for he has given you the teacher of righteousness. Number one, the word for, te- for early rain is just most commonly translated teacher, okay? It's most commonly translated teacher. Does anyone have a footnote in their Bible that says that? I don't even know if the, I don't even know if the ESV does. What's that? Say that again. Okay. Teacher, Okay interesting literal rain right contextually yeah and that's and that's the issue so the reason why people and you're like man why why would the ESV the new american standard why would all these good translations then translate it the early rain I'll tell you why because the last line of verse 23 that says the early rain, right? The early and the latter rain, the early rain, it's the same word, moreh, okay? Now, here, <laughs> here's the tricky part, okay? So, the word for teacher, I'll just do this in English, starts with M, but then it has the same letters that follow, like M-O-R-E-H, okay? Early rain would be the exact same letters except it starts with the Y, Y O R E H. Okay. And so one part of this is that there's maybe a textual issue here with the second usage, or it could be deliberate that Joel is trying to make an illusion. Okay. Meaning that when Messiah comes, he's going to bring the rain. Right? Does that make sense? Bring the rain. And he'll reign over them. right? I'm trying to be funny, okay? But it actually makes sense because in, guess what? In Deuteronomy chapter 28, what's one of the blessings for obedience? Rain, right? Joel, in context, what's been going on? A drought, right? When Messiah comes, he's going to bring. I mean, he is the obedient one. He's going to, you know, reign over a restored Israel that is obedient. And when he comes, there's going to be rain. Okay. depending on which way you translate it? Is that when Messiah comes, Joel, if, if you take that translate, which by the way, I'm 50-50 on this. I'm not convictional either way. Yeah. Yeah. So the word translated early reign, most commonly in the Old Testament, just simply means teacher. It just means teacher. Okay. A word that is very, very, very similar to it just like one letter different means early rain. Okay? So that's the issue, is that maybe Joel's trying to do like a wordplay type thing. Okay? The teaching is that, the conclusion is that when Messiah comes, in other words, this glorious restoration that we've been talking about will happen when Messiah comes. Does that make sense? Obviously, hold on. Obviously, that didn't happen. And sorry, this is important. Is this interesting to anyone else? But but also real real quick, Colleen. Obviously, that glorious restoration did not happen at his first coming. Therefore, I'm saying, I'm suggesting that has to mean his second coming. Is what Joel is saying. Does that make sense? (laughs) So early rain. So I'll read through this. Okay, for he has given the early rain. morech, That's one word for. That's the word for teacher your vindication he has poured down for you abundant rain that's geshem that's the normal hebrew word for rain the early that's more that's that same word for teacher that they're translating early rain and the latter rain malkash i don't know how to pronounce it well is latter rain does that make sense and to make it simpler there's more hebrew words for rain that are not in this passage Abundant rain is actual rain, water from the sky. Raindrops are falling on your head. That's a good question. There's a lot of rain. Yeah. Lori. That would be the point if that would be the tra- if you translate it that way. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yes. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Yes, but I would argue, and this is why I went back to my point, is that that actually isn't as inserted as you think, because the argument would then be, and again, like I said, I'm, I'm split on this, but the argument would then be is that this restoration comes when Messiah comes, which theologically, that's not hard to do at all because that's what, actually what we believe, is that when Messiah returns, the second coming, and he reigns on his throne for a thousand years, there is a glorious restoration. So that's actually not that crazy to do. Now, if you don't have that theological presupposition, right, if you're an a mill or post-mill, then yeah, that's really weird. But for us, Again, I get why it's kind of weird, because it's like physical, 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 messianic prophecy, physical, it's like, okay, but actually in context, that's not as crazy. One one more reason why um, there's a good chance that he's talking about the teacher of righteousness is because it has the article, the, okay, so every time that morech is used to talk about just rain, it doesn't use the article. The article is just the, okay. So, the fact that he says the uh, early rain or the teacher of righteousness could be that he's talking about a person and not just rain. The other 50% would just be that he's talking about rain, is that he's talking about early rains. Um, I was reading about this in a commentary, but just the the, the rain coming at all different points of the season in the spring and the fall, right? So, that... That, that would make sense, but it's also, this is where it's like, it makes sense and it also doesn't. Because Hebrew poetry says the same thing on top of each other a lot, right? But at the same time, it kind of seems repetitive if he just goes, he's given the early rain for your vindication, he's pronounced for you abundant rain, the early rain, and the latter rain. It's like, that's a lot of rain. And he's already talked about the early rain, so why would he say the early rain again? And, you know, devil's advocate in my head is it's like, well, earlier he said four locusts, so here saying four rains, that kind of makes sense. I just... Was the, I was just thinking about that right now, but so that's what I'm saying. Is like, I I don't know. So that's, yeah, yes, yeah, no, 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 no. Yes. So let, let me end with this. I I know you guys. I've I've kept you guys too long, but hopefully you guys enjoy it. I don't know. I I love Joel. I mean, it's this has been a new study for me too, and I'm learning a lot. Um, but yes. Yeah, so the point would be is that. The, um, the early church fathers and the Qumran community were not incorrect in their interpretation. They were incorrect in their application. Well, the Qumran community was incorrect in saying that it referred to some leader. The early church fathers are saying, no, this is a messianic prophecy. It was not incorrect. So that's kind of the history. And if you want this article, if you're like Caleb, that was confusing. The Teacher of Righteousness, a Messianic Interpretation of Joel 2.23 by Michael Reitelnik. Um, this was a journal article um, published a couple of years ago that was real helpful for me because he he cle- he believes clearly that it is a messianic interpretation, but he lays down how you get there. Okay, so I've got a few of these if you if you want to read it, more than happy to give it to you. Was that? Yeah, yeah. Was that fun? Is that helpful? I love the book of Joel. So I was hoping to get to verse twenty-seven. That's okay. I'll, I'll get through that really quick. I want to spend all of next week, if you guys have the whole note packet, I really want to try and spend all of next week on just Joel 2.28 to 32 and how that's quoted in Acts 2. Okay.